Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center. This is Benjamin Graham with your news. In quarantine news, we are still under quarantine. Under the watchful eye of safety leader Joshua Kahn, over half the station is now under quarantine afflicted with Captain Trips. Our thoughts are with those few survivors battling the wasteland outside. Never forget the... <clears throat> no. No, 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 no. I, I'm fine. Get him. He's sick. <laughs> the, you're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. What's up, constant readers? And today we are discussing part three of The Stand. We'll be covering chapters 45 through 51, so spoilers for the book ahead. And we have CM leading our discussion. Take it away, CM. Thanks, Josh. Last episode, our major characters started to come together, many making their way to Mother Abigail and others making their way to Father Flag. Before oh, oh, like oh, no. I prefer uh, Daddy Flag. Thank you. I'll leave right now. <laughs> so, Daddy Flag. Before we get going on this, I wanted to ask both of you a question. If you were in this book, who would you be making your way to? Oof. Who? Who, boy. Okay. I thought about this, too. Uh, I, I did think about this, uh, especially in the later chapters that, that we're going to get to today, because, you know, you want to think that you're a good person. Sure. Right. But there are some stuff that uh, Team Abigail, Team Boulder does and, and like says in preparation for the coming conflict that made me go, holy shit, these are the good guys. <laughs> Also, I really like air conditioning, so sure, like, who yeah. knows? No, yeah, air conditioning really had me, too. I, I think I would want to go with the Mother Abigail team, but at my heart, I'm a coward and would <laughs> give in to the Dark Man's terrorizing dreams. There's, and it also affects whether I'm alone or with people. Like, mm-hmm. who you're with as you travel also kind of helps define who you're with, who, where you end up, I guess. Yeah, and do we have a choice anyway? True. Because that's something uh, that kind of comes up over and over again. Are these people choosing one team or another? There are some people that are on the edge that we kind of get the feeling that like, oh, they could go either. But, but they, they don't. And <laughs> they can't. <laughs> is, is it fate or is it a uh, uh, choice? I think it's fate. CM, where do you end up? I... Uh... I'm gonna pat. I'm gonna put a pin in that for now. <laughs> a I, pin in the question you asked. Yes. Got it. Okay. Well, we're I gonna think... have to relocate the podcast to Vegas, guys. <laughs> Sorry. No, I think it's a, a there's a it's a combination of fate and choice because characters in some cases are on the verge of making choices, and we're gonna talk about this mm-hmm. eventually. But and just something happens and it interferes with that choice, but it's still their choice. And then of course we get other instances similar to what's happening with like the wolves and stuff, which we'll also get to where flag is clearly exerting some sort of control over Mm. people and animals. So I think it depends maybe on how open you are to giving up your choice and just letting something else take over. It's a good point. And I feel like I have to say Mother Abigail just to be contrary. <laughs> okay, so chapter 45 kicks off with Mother Abigail, who's sitting on her front porch on one of the most beautiful summer days since 1955. And she is expositioning, which isn't a word, but we're going with it. <laughs> it's, we better because it happens a lot in this uh, this stretch. Yeah, this chapter is very long, so we're not going to have time to discuss everything, which is where you listeners can post on our Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever, or email us and we can have a a mini chat about the things we didn't cover. Let's talk about how weird it is that she's Republican. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Um, So there are two things that I think are important to touch on. And the first is her family's history, how she came to be sitting on the front porch of a house that is totally suited to the apocalypse. The second, of course, the arrival of some of our guests. 
But before we talk about that, I, I just want you guys to think about one thing you each thought was really cool from this chapter that we can make sure to touch. So um, who is Mother Abigail? Mother Abigail is the oldest person in the world. She's 108 years old. She's got the certificate and the birth, the birth certificate and the award from the president to prove it. <laughs> Let's go back even further than that, Josh, because her family has a unique history in this town they live in. Yes, they were. It's their, their family was the, they were the first black family to own property in this entire area. Uh, the thing that I found most interesting in her expositing, is that the word? Uh, <laughs> is her uh, competing in the, she competed in an all white talent show and like blew the roof off the place. Mm-hmm. And that's like one of the biggest moments in her like growing up. She talks about it for a very, very long time. <laughs> very but long time. In this, uh, in her telling her life story, uh, we get, the sense of who she is and she is brave and she is strong. Uh, she is very sure of herself. She knows who she is and she's very comfortable and sure in that. And all of that comes from her love of God. She's a very devout woman, which is the reason I think that, uh, everyone has been dreaming of her because she's, uh, a scion? Is that a word? Is that is that word meant? Yeah, I, like, yeah. Like, she's, she's like the. She's a beacon of goodness. The, like, she's so the she's beacon a that robot. Through. She's like a sleeper. <laughs> not a who's Cylon. Going to, oh, a Cylon, no, not a Cylon. Okay, 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 no, so. she's she is God's messenger <laughs> right. on Earth, and it's super weird to me. I forgot how religious this book gets. It's so easy to forget how religious this book is because even some of his other books that kind of dive into religion, like the mist, for example, that's a very, the character in that that is religious Mm -hmm. is more of, I think what we typically think of when we think of overly religious people, Mm -hmm. mother Abigail, on the other hand is like, I, this doesn't bother me at all. I could listen to her talk about her faith and Mm -hmm. God and all that all day. It would not give me any icky vomit feelings that I usually get. Well, I think the important difference is Mother Abigail doesn't want this. Like mm-hmm. the, at a certain point, she says like almost every day that she thinks, does it have to be me? Can't I just not be anymore? And it can be someone else's problem. I wake up, I'm still here. So it must still be on me. Yeah. Her unwavering faith is so unrelatable to me (laughs) that it's fascinating Mm -hmm. um and she she is a great character and how does her lifelong stubbornness come to pay off for her and our characters well she doesn't have to worry about indoor plumbing (laughs) she (laughs) refused to get a toilet inside her house and she's got a a hand pump for a well outside so she still has fresh Mm -hmm. water yeah, and it, it really, it shows, it goes into showing uh, stubborn is a really good word because she's like, nah, I'm, I'm, these are my ways. But it also shows like, that's why she was chosen. Like she could survive because uh, she had all of this old timey experience. Once our uh, first group, Nick's group shows up, uh, with Tom Cullen and Ralph Bretner and, and all these people. And she's showing them how to do all this stuff that they never would have known. They uh, She helps them uh, slaughter a pig so they can eat. That was boss. <laughs> and it's awesome because she's uh, this 108-year-old woman. And she's like, nah, get out of the way. And <laughs> I'm going to cut this pig open. She what? is self-sufficient. And instead of mm-hmm. like finding that crazy guy who's always talking about, you know, the government and conspiracies, and you know, <laughs> yep. he's got a basement full of guns and canned food. You have mother Abigail <laughs> who's just self-sufficient yeah. well, and, and something kind that's, and loving. That's something that's interesting is that we, we talk about how strong she is, but when she, that morning she wakes up and she knows she's going to get company. So she's like, well, I have to prepare. So she's like, I'm going to go down to this farm and see if the chickens are still alive and I'm going to go grab some chickens. Those chickens, that farm is four miles away. It takes her literally all day to get there <laughs> for her strength of spirit. Physically, she is it's it's they make it very apparent how like not imposing this woman is. She is mm-hmm. so fragile physically that they need this like army of goodness to surround her. Uh, I love that scene. 
also because of uh, what happens as she's coming back to Hemingford home, her her house. She is walking with these chickens in a bag, getting ready to take them home and slaughter them so she can make food. When she is beset by uh, hundreds of weasels. And she has this flashback to being a kid and being attacked by a weasel, and she's she's mortally terrified of them. But in that minute, all she does is she's like, hey, get out of here. These are for my guests. <laughs> and they scatter. And that is the first, other than the supernatural dreams, aspect of the dreams, that's the first vision we get of, there's no questioning it. God's real in this, in this world. <laughs> yeah. God's real, and she's protecting this woman and uh, the people that'll be joining her. Yeah. I thought it was also cool because she has a nightmare that night, and it is Flag likes to take anything good in your life and flip that and make <laughs> it a nightmare. Because on, when she's talking about this talent show and the white folks and how they're going to react. And her mom's terrified. Her and dad's like, nope, we got to do this. And she's an adult woman when this happens. And like you said, Josh, they they just get blown away by her talent and skill. She sings and plays guitar. Well, in her dream, you know, you so you escape that moment thinking, thank God, no stupid bullshit racist crap <laughs> happened. Like right. it most likely would have then. And still now, unfortunately, we got past it, and then here comes Flag. Nope, we're going to get the flip side of that. And she has this horrible nightmare about people reacting poorly to her and calling her names and tearing her off the stage and tearing her clothes off and raping Be- her and beating, beating her father her family. to death. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, that is every single thing we see of Flag in this section, which isn't a lot. He is a background character. He's just... He's always in the back of people's minds. That's but what makes him he, terrifying. He does show up in these like little, uh, little moments. It's so fucking scary. <laughs> Let's spend a couple minutes on her guests arriving because we have a couple days later. Nick, Ralph, Tom, Olivia, June, Dick, and Gina all come. Yeah, this is our first, our first pilgrims arriving. The second that Nick and Mother Abigail meet, it's such a cool moment uh, because they already know each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I got very confused when all these people pulled up. I was like, wait, when did this happen? <laughs> yeah, I thought <laughs> like, I missed a chapter right? where I was like, wait they a minute. all met up. <laughs> yeah. But like, it, it's very cool that like once they once they got wheels, they started gathering more followers and, and you get that sense of this this community growing and we get more of that as it goes later. Like other groups of people have like gained all these people and and like everybody has made Nick like the de facto leader, despite the fact that he's a deaf mute. Everyone just in that party looks Mm -hmm. to Nick, even like they're having a conversation on the dinner table. And as they're talking about things, they look to him as if for confirmation of everything they're saying. I do love that Mother Abigail had to put her teeth in so that Nick could understand her. <laughs> yeah, because she, <laughs> she, she couldn't read so her much. lips. Um, not only does, like, everyone automatically has made Nick the leader, but Abigail even pulls him aside and says, Nick, you know, I've been dreaming of you, too. You're the one. You are chosen. Uh, you, God has specifically sent you here for a reason. And Nick's like, nah, man. I, that, I get that I've been, uh, I've seen you in prophetic dreams, but that's a little much. Which is a recurring theme. Like, no, it's so obviously God. <laughs> but no one will acknowledge it. You know, hearing you talk about that exchange makes me so sad and angry about what happens that we're not even going to get to in this episode. Oh, God. Oh, dude. Uh, spoilers. Oh, my God. I know. Just a little. Guys, you freak me out sometimes when you talk like this. Delicious foreshadowing for Josh. <laughs> Anything else that you guys want to note about this chapter before we move on? Uh, really, uh, two quick things. The one that uh, I, I loved her response when he's like, uh, he doesn't believe in God. And she says, it's not, it doesn't matter whether you believe in him, he believes in you. 
I thought that was a really cool moment to like lock that bumper that sticker in. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, but I also, when she, Abigail talks that she dreamt about the plague two years before it happened. And she referred to that, her premonitions as the shining lamp of God. I, I wrote that down too. I was uh, like, that's awesome. <laughs> okay. So chapter 46, I'm just going to give the chapters at the start of this in case our listeners want to go to that chapter and dig a little deeper maybe than we might. You uh, have to with a book this thick. Yeah, chapter 46 <laughs> is like 50 pages. Okay, so the it's interesting because the first two parts of this book moved. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't call that slow, but it was take like now it's taking its time to give us a lot of great character stuff. And so we're back with Franny and the gang. And they've picked up a few more people along the way. And Franny has started to journal to her baby. And she's talking about her trip and what the world used to be like. And for some reason, just totally trashing Harold. (laughs) The journal that she wants her kid to someday read. We're going to talk at length about the issue of the journal. Um, But for now, (laughs) the important part of this chapter is that Mark, a party member we haven't met yet, seems to be a remnant of chapter 38. (laughs) Chapter 38, if you remember, is the one where a bunch of survivors around the country died meaningless deaths, except for the refrigerator mom who totally had that. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, when this starts up, uh, she's talking about, there's been a time skip, right? And she's talking about her, the group, and casually mentions it's uh, Stu, Fran, Harold, Glenn, and then this Mark Braddock and Arian McCarthy, who who has joined them. And I'm like, oh, new characters. That's really cool. We're going to get to know these. No, no, not so much. <laughs> because almost immediately, uh, this Mark, um, his, his appendix explodes. Mm. And it's so tense. Um, this Mark and Perry, I think they call her. Met, met and are in love and it's just them sitting around watching this guy die and arguing about what can we do nothing no yeah well and that's that's what a lot of the infighting becomes is is it better to try to save his life and him likely die because there are no doctors none of us are doctors and I think they at one point they discussed the philosophy of the bullshit they went through and learned in college. Like, none of us learned anything valuable. Like, we all studied this boring shit. Not one of us learned how to grow crops mm-hmm. or be a doctor or, like, anything that's valuable in this new world. And at, at a certain point, it just pushes Stu to be like, well, I'm going to – it's better than doing nothing. So Stu uh, and Glenn go in to get, like, medical equipment and textbooks – and they do their best. Like, he, he goes in there and tries to take his appendix out. He finds his appendix. Yeah, the the <laughs> part of the chapter where it, it the, the chapter jumps around back and forth between what's happening in the present with Mark and his appendicitis and Fran's uh, journal since the last time we had been with this group. And when it cuts back to... In media res, the surgery is really cool and really tense and really sad. Yeah. The way that this was written, because we come back and Stu's, I'm being dramatic, but elbow deep in the sky. <laughs> that's that's, <laughs> that's, not, that's dramatic, that's but also <laughs> sin, like just what's happening. And Franny's holding the medical book for him and, you know, everybody's just sort of waiting. And in any other book, in any show, in any fantasy or nightmare you have it'd work he would be successful he would do the surgery he'd stitch him back up the guy would pull through and as Stu is trying his very very best to save his life Perry's just like Stu Stu and he's like okay give give me this I need to do this Stu and you know why she's saying his name. Mm-hmm. And he he's trying so hard and he's so determined. It's part of what makes Stu Redman such a cool character is he's so, he just wants to try to do the best he can. And eventually pairs like Stu, he's, he died two minutes ago. And 
literally probably before we came back to this scene, he was already dead. Yeah. Really shows the futility uh, of the whole situation they're in. But it does a, another important thing, and it drives Fran to comfort stew. So she hugs him, and then Harold uh, kicks rocks and pouts for the rest of the night. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, also, we should mention, they've been having such awful nightmares that they're all taking sleeping pills. Which sleeping I believe pills? was Harold's Veranol. idea. Yeah, yes. except was... for Franny. She's palming him because she's yeah. pregnant, of course. Yeah. Um, which leads to after Mark dies, the very same night, I think, uh, Perry is found uh, OD'd on these sleeping pills. Yeah. So, so much for those two characters. Let's move yeah. on. So of all the horror that's happened so far, this next chapter, chapter 47, was the first chapter in this book to truly horrify me. And it starts with the sentence, when it happened, it happened fast. Guys, what happened fast? <laughs> My first note was, the book briefly remembers its genre. up to this point everyone's just been traveling across the country everyone's got guns but there's been no problems uh other than the appendicitis and the the finding food and stuff but there's been no nothing that you would expect from a post-apocalyptic uh genre book right so this threw me because of that shift i had to go back and read this again to be like wait what just happened with no context what i what happened in my brain was they came across a wreck there's four people or there's four men eight women and the guys are say or like telling them to dismount cuz they're on their motorcycles or their motor scooters and he Harold reaches for his pistol and Stu says don't but then proceeds to slide his rifle down and then people start shooting each other. And I was like, wait. And I had to go back and start from the beginning and like, wait, so wait, what's happening? Yeah. That's the same confusion that you feel. Cause it's all being told from Fran's perspective uh-huh. and it unfolds in that dream. Like you kind of know what's going on. You just primally you're like, Oh, this is bad. Yeah. And she even says, she's like, there were four men with guns and eight women. And then in parentheses, she's like, oh my God, there's four guys and eight women. Just primarily like, that doesn't add up. It's a rape gang. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. It's bad. But I did laugh once pretty hard because the, they start firing at each other. And one of these four uh, slavers, basically, yeah. pulls... Uh, like a bead on Harold and says, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and Harold's response is to drop his gun yes! and yell, don't do that. <laughs> Which is once again, exactly what I would do <laughs> in the same situation. This is also just after Harold fired his first shot, missed, and then is like, whoop. Yeah. <laughs> ben, you're going to have to stop making comparisons. <laughs> No, we will get there because (laughs) no. Deviates. Um, Yeah, so there is an epic gunfight, and they're all terrible fighters, except Stu, who is the least terrible fighter. (laughs) Stu, our gunslinger, you guys. Oh, Uh, absolutely. Arguably, I think the best fighter is the girl who bludgeons the guy to death with a shotgun. (laughs) No, (laughs) That is pretty badass. Like, she pulls the trigger and finds there's nothing in it, she just flips it around let's do this (laughs) this fight is that's why it's so upsetting is i feel like it's so realistic because none of these people except for arguably the four guys with guns who are dressed in army fatigues some of them Mm -hmm. our heroes aren't trained firefighters they are not trained with guns of course they're gonna miss most of their shots Mm -hmm. and it just makes it more tense yeah So Dana and Susan join the party, and this is when we figure out why, when our group met this rape gang, (laughs) the the women just lost their shit. Um, So they had been kidnapped, drugged, raped, just horribly mistreated, and this gang had been following our gang, and they wanted Franny. And so the women saw this confrontation as an opportunity for them to get the upper hand on their kidnappers, 
they were being, I think I mentioned they were being drugged. So before this happened, they had started palming their drugs so that they could be more clear. And then as soon as they, they saw that opportunity, they took it. And uh, two of the women survive and join our gang. Uh, five, actually. Five. There, are, there are five survivors. So five of the women survive and I mean, join our gang. I <laughs> mean, most of them are catatonic, though. Like, right. The way they describe some of the things that these women have That's why oh, I didn't remember the other shrieks. Some of it is so awful. So Dana gives Franny a wake-up call because she Franny thinks that she's into stew, which ultimately causes her to... Go to stew. I, I would t- like to take a second to discuss Franny's character for a second. <laughs> Go ahead. I've been, I've liked Fran so far, but there are, she's a kid. Like, how old is Franny? Do we know? 19. 19, 19 or 18? Yeah, yeah sh- she shows it in this section. In the previous chapter, as Mark is laying, dying, uh, cradled in the arms of this Parian uh, that, that's in love with him, there's a moment where she she's looking at them and she says, Franny always thought she saw the best in people. But the way she then describes Parian is as, quote, looking like a horse and <laughs> describing her hair as almost gorgeous. What a asshole having like she flashbacks is. to the long walk like, yeah. she, she has horse hair <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's such a dick move and now they've just rescued these five women from mortal peril and literally the worst thing that has ever happened in their lives they are all shell-shocked and as soon as they sit down to talk dana says one fucking (laughs) and she's like hey it's such a it's a herald move they are not together yep and she's instantly like hmm i that's my guy Remember when we first met Franny and I said when I read this book as a teenager, I hated her. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of get that now. Yeah. Oh, Harold put the moves on Franny officially, finally, I guess. He went and he made the smooch and it was gross. It went about as well as we expected it to go. Um, Yeah, Franny goes to stew. They're a thing now. It's very sweet, and they make love in the woods. And instead of like getting that that scene <laughs> so where romantic. the camera pans out and we see the the curtain blowing gently in the breeze of the open window, we pan out and we see Harold watching them do it, standing behind yeah. some bushes. Fuck! And this Ugh. is just after they like have sex in the woods because uh, they're romantic, and they they're like laying there, and Fran says something about being worried about Harold. And Stu sticks up for the guy. He he's like, oh, Harold. He he's a kid, but he's he's a good kid. He, he has goodness in him. And I wrote, God damn, I like Stu. And then immediately, like Harold is standing in the bushes, and I'm like, <laughs> fuck, I hate Harold. <laughs> God damn it. I would like to put it out there. After this section, Harold is not my Annie. Okay. Not <laughs> at all. I have no empathy for this fucking kid. He sucks. Yeah, this is a major turning point for Harold's character, although he does come upon those crossroads as we continue. Unfortunate phrasing. So what happens next is that Harold sneaks into Franny's tent in the dead of the night. He takes her journal. And Ben, you wanted to talk about what is in her journal. He reads it. Let's talk about that. He reads through her journal and... Franny, being kind of an asshole, has not been kind. Um, Not the meanest. It's never been malicious. But it's so almost thoughtless that that kind of makes it meaner. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Later on, she even says, she goes back through her journal and says, for what purpose? Mm -hmm. Why did I bother writing so much about what an asshole Harold is? Granted, he is. (laughs) But, like, he, he reads all of this. And it breaks him. I want to know what you guys think about that because he's, after he reads it and he's putting it back, he thinks to himself, if she wakes up, I'll kill her and I'll run. That was and fucked up. That's a very, I know that he saw them make love and he's supposed to be in love with her and that must be 
terrible and dramatic. And then he finds out what she really thinks of him in a way that she would never tell him. Mm -hmm. Like it's a very sort of um, open and vulnerable moment. But wow, he just goes right for I would I will kill her. The contrast here, like, I don't know if this struck anyone else as very jarring, but directly following if she'd woken up, I would have killed her. It says he went back to his sleeping oh, bag yeah. and masturbates bitterly is the phrasing. And I'm like, what is happening in your brain? Yeah. That these are the connections you're making now. Well, he it, it, it breaks his brain. I, I do believe this is the point where uh, there, there's this point where he says, quote, he could have stopped. Oh, wait, no, that's not a real quote. That's my own quote. <laughs> uh, the, he has this half a second of sanity. Like, as he's reading this, he's taking it in and feeling this, um, basically, the real center of Harold's character, self-loathing. It's all of this hate and anger. It's all just misdirected self-loathing. But he's feeling this, but he has this half second of sanity where he says, I could put this back and let it all go. I could create a new life. I could move on. I could be this useful member of society, but then that would be throwing away everything he sees as himself. And the quote that is not real, but I wrote down, quote, he could have stopped, but he was too much of a gross pervert. (laughs) (laughs) And I I feel like we get um, in later chapters a better sense Mm -hmm. of of why he was unwilling to let this go, because Mm -hmm. it's sort of these things about him that he needs to change and that are ultimately going to destroy him are make up his self identity. Mm-hmm. So Harold starts his own journal, the ledger, which we're going to get after get more of. A- after dreaming of the dark man yeah. and a red eye in the West as he dies on a steep hill covered in rocks. <sighs> okay. Just a note about the chapter we just covered and the one we're about to go into. These two chapters were originally cut from the early editions. Really? I knew that about the next chapter. I didn't know that about yep. the, the, and, this that's one. Interesting. And, and these these are like really hard chapters. They especially... are honestly content warning <laughs> for the past 10 minutes of the and, and the next, the next 10. 10 minutes. You guys, last episode I didn't like Trash Can Man. I came down on him pretty hard. He has my complete sympathy. Okay. Harold Lauder is not my Annie Wilkes. Fucking Trash Can Man is. <laughs> Trash Can Man is the goddamn hero of this book. Oh my God. Josh, All right. Can, can you just like flip flop like that once you have <laughs> internalized a character that way, the way you and I have done? Can you just go back on it and switch no, it up? <laughs> it is, it's different. I have, I understand Harold. As much as I don't want to, I, I get the the his damage like i yeah. understand it but i don't fucking empathize i don't simp- i empathize i don't sympathize with him you're not rooting for him yeah, yeah. you can understand someone's behavior without condoning exactly it. yep no Trash I, i'm just giving you a hard time ben. fucking <laughs> rules <laughs> and everything that he does and is is not his fault oh all right it is society and fucking God that has failed him. I'm inclined to agree with everything you just said. Okay. So this chapter starts with Trash Can Man coming through the mountains. He has traveled across. We last saw him in Indiana, and he is in coming out of the mountains and sees Vegas in the distance, and he has lost his entire goddamn mind. (laughs) And he's all, he's like burnt up and in pain and burnt torn his body is literally rotting like he says that he could the smell from his arm isn't as bad as it used to be (laughs) he's a glass half full kind of guy and that's what i appreciate about trash can man but he sees uh i wish i would have looked up how to pronounce sibola 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 the promised land in the distance and we we jump back and forth between uh his journey to Vegas and um, his adventure with yeah, he, the kid. Yeah, he meets Elvis Presley. <laughs> <sighs> I, 
I hate this guy. It was, what the, he looked like uh, baby Elvis. Oh my God. Was the I, description. Yeah. He is described. Okay. So uh, backtrack. Uh, uh, as he was traveling across the country where um, we should start with uh, him walking through our hometown. Yeah. Yes, that was so cool. It, it's literally one line, but every single time I read this book, I take a picture of it and like send it to people. <laughs> I'm like, ah. they mentioned the Quad Cities. That's rad. But he travels and he goes through Nebraska. This is the first part I want to talk about. Yeah, that was awesome. Because he's been having dreams of the Dark Man, and he's already saying, "My life for you. You are." He he's pledging himself. To the dark man. But as soon as he gets to Nebraska, those dreams fade. And he starts having another dream. He starts having nightmares. <laughs> this is the first mm-hmm. time he's experiencing nightmares. Nightmares of this old woman that he feels is somehow going to stop him if he doesn't make it through before she gets him. And is it this chapter where she's dreaming of him yes. and he's he's like hiding in the corn and she feels pity yes. for a moment? Yes. Except... Bullshit. Okay, this is what I want to talk about, about Trash Can Man could have been saved, but God fucking rejects him. He walks through Nebraska, which is hollowed land. When you enter Nebraska, you stop dreaming of the dark man. And he dreams of Mother Abigail, this warm, inviting uh, person, the symbol of God on earth. And when Mother Abigail, who is also dreaming of him because it's a two-way connection, she feels him in the corn, and instead of saying, you, you poor man, you mentally disturbed person who has been tormented and lived such a painful light, please come to me. I will give you rest. I will help you. She goes, weasels in the corn! (laughs) And flips out! Question for you, though. I alluded to earlier that flag can be inside of our heads mm-hmm. and he can kind of control us and make us follow him. Does she think there are weasels in the corn because of that touch that he's placed on him? That's that's very possible. That Because this happens one other time later on with a different character mm-hmm. where Mother Abigail sees something in them and uh, doesn't. Invite them in. Gets distracted by something, yeah. Sure, if Flag's, like, fucking with it. What what the hell, God? (laughs) This is an Old Testament God, man. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) It's mad fucked up. (laughs) Put that on the back of the book. (laughs) Mad fucked up, Benjamin Graham. I don't want to, like, really go into this in detail because it's horrible, but Elvis Presley rapes Trash Can Man. (laughs) Yeah. And I had to stop. Oh, I put the book down. God, it's so dark. And in our chat, I was like, this chapter is horrible. Yes. This is hard. It, the kid. He He's this tiny little guy with a baby face that looks like a little Elvis and is described like a bad guy in a Coen Brothers movie. Yep. <laughs> and drives a hot rod and gets drunk. And the less we talk about him, the better. And sure. I knew this was a cut. Uh, 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 cut from the original book. It's so and interesting because be... that this chapter is what made me feel for him, the trash yes. man, and made me like realize, man, he's a he's a guy with problems, and if somebody would help him, things mm-hmm. would be different. The important the the important thing that the kid brings to the table in this situation is that he, him and the trash can man, he's like, oh, I'm going to to meet flag too i'm going to to join the dark man's army but when i get there i'm going to take it over i'm going to see what his whole operation is and then i'm going to be the boss and that's the first time that the trash can man's faith is essentially tested and after that terrible night they spend together he gets a vision of flag saying that just wait and see wait Mm -hmm. and see it's sad because flag doesn't do what he does to Elvis because of what he did to Trash Can. He's not protecting oh, God, no. his oh, flag. Oh, sure, no. He does it because he's being arrogant and thinks that he can take over. Yeah. So yeah, he gets eaten by wolves. Not brutal enough. No, I thought I... Well, I we, n- we never actually see this. him be eaten by wolves. Yeah, he gets chased into a car by 
dozens and dozens of so wolves. he either gets eaten to death by wolves or he starves to but death. But that's in my a car. favorite thing. Like so, they're they're standing there, and the kid rushes in because all these wolves are coming down, and he locks himself in the car, and they're not harming Trash Can Man, and one of them like bites his hand a little and leads the trash can man away and he has the thought that he has is i wonder how long those wolves will stay there well i guess as long as it takes Hmm. and that then just leaves him to the night yeah before we move on i do want to say uh you said the most important thing that uh the kid brings is this uh flag showing his power to uh the trash can man I would argue the most important thing he brings is two of the worst catchphrases <laughs> I have ever heard in my oh, goddamn so life. Annoying. Do you believe that happy crappy? Fuck you. That was get out of my book. Ben, it took me like a week to get that phrase out of my head and <laughs> you just put it back. So annoying. I don't even remember what the other one is. I have forcibly oh. removed it from uh, my it mind. was uh don't, oh, tell don't, me, don't tell me, I'll tell you. Don't tell me, I'll tell you. You yeah. fucking You fucking Josh, asshole. you're listening to it, right? Yes. Josh and I are both <laughs> I'm, listening to I'm it. I'm listening that and adds reading. a level of <sighs> difficulty. I literally stopped the audiobook and read the rest of this chapter. <laughs> I can't hear it. I can't hear it again. I couldn't I couldn't do it. Oh, all right. We should mention that this chapter ends with um Trash Can Man reaching Vegas, meeting Lloyd, God, yeah. and uh being accepted. And this is another thing that the reason Trash Can is so loyal is when he gets there. He's brought in with open arms. This is so messed up because in in this moment, I was so happy for him because the first time he's been treated well. That's what I'm saying. Happy and even when he does have to participate in a crucifixion, (laughs) he just gets right up there and goes for it, man. Yeah, Uh, denying the guy three times because Stephen King is not subtle. His His meeting with Lloyd though was weird because Lloyd seems like a completely different person yeah. than who we've met before. Yes. For sure. He's competent and yeah, he seems like, like he has kinda, a head on his shoulders. Kinda yeah. Like kinda cool. cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh well, we're messed up. <laughs> I I knew that I was gonna like the new Lloyd as soon as he referred to himself as the Dark Man's mascot. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, this is great. All right, so chapter 49, this is a short one. We just catch back up with Larry and his party. Larry's got a lady, Lucy. Uh, she and the judge, another cool dude that we're going to get more of, fortunately. Uh, yeah, the judge who I at first wrote is indistinguishable from Glenn Bateman. <laughs> yep. Yeah. He's just yeah. a cool old He's dude. He's Larry's Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they have a heart-to-heart talk about what kind of man Larry is. A one who is struggling to be good. It's Still a fucking asshole. <laughs> this whole scene, him and Lucy, who he is with, have a talk about how, how he loves Nadine. He's in yeah. love with Nadine. And he says to her, Nadine or Lucy, I love you as much as I can. Oh god, that's brutal. What a dick. So brutal. In and her that- defense, he's sort of the last man on earth. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it's also, I mean, like, yes, Larry is being a taker in this situation, but she acknowledges her part in that she is allowing this of like she is still with him because she needs something from him, too. And we also get some of Nadine's backstory and uh, some understanding of her connection to the dark man. Okay, so the note that I made. The Lucy talks about uh, Nadine denies having any dreams. She mm. refuses to. She says she's not having any of these. They're all full of shit. In in her dreams, she's talking out loud and she keeps saying so cold in her dreams. The note I made is she dreaming dreaming of Flag having sex with her. It's his dick. His dick is cold. his dick is cold. <laughs> <laughs> He's got that ice wang, uh, and because I remember that from the first chapter about him having sex with people and they just felt an unshakable coldness. Mm -hmm. And almost immediately after is when she says that she's saving herself for flag. Mm -hmm. She's a virgin. She doesn't know. She just thinks, yeah, give me that cold. (laughs) (laughs) They're cold, right? (laughs) 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 Uh, uh, Yeah. yeah. Nadine's, story is really fascinating I think Mm -hmm. because in this chapter we get a feeling that it's going to be like this battle 
within her for her soul? Will she go? Because she's attracted to Larry. She she almost let Larry, uh, she always was with Larry, and that would have broken whatever hold flag has or whatever. It's interesting to be like, oh, will she be good? Will she be bad? It sucks that that boils down to who will Nadine fuck? <laughs> oh, when you say it like that. Yeah, yeah. it sucks. Yeah. Uh, well, she is a woman in the apocalypse. So as Franny oh, Lord, has stated or skipped sta- over yeah, that. Sh- what else is she good for, guys? Women, their only power is to pop out babies now. They, oh, in this Lord, new women, world. women are slaves to their bodies. Is what Franny, oh. yeah, Franny has a bit where she just goes on this tirade saying, thank you, men, for taking care of okay, us. Okay, you know what? I, I <laughs> have to go I have to go back to my barf. original statement. I don't like Franny. <laughs> okay, let's talk about what happens with Nadine, her backstory a little bit, and then we'll move on. The important thing, I think, the, the coolest thing about Nadine's backstory is that uh, every, t- it's, every time she has some sort of sexual urge... She wakes up the next morning with not gray, but more white hair. Every one of those instances, like that, she she's slowly like, I, 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 yeah, because Shang Tsung sucked out <laughs> part of her soul, <laughs> giving her Sindel hair. Yes, yeah. I, I thought that was super cool. Well, sex is evil for her. I guess, so, yeah. It's got to be some sort of punishment. I I didn't make the rules. Stephen <laughs> made the rules. Don't look at me that way. Okay, chapter fifty. We are finally in. Drum roll, please. The Boulder Free Zone. Fuck yes. Zone, 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 zone. I love zones, you guys. Zones. Yeah, we I fucking love them. We may have failed to mention that Mother Abigail was told by God that they need to go to Boulder, Colorado, even though she doesn't want to leave her sweet home that mm. has the best setup. So they are building a new life in Boulder, and Larry and Gang arrive in this chapter. And Joe and Nadine have interesting and completely opposite reactions to Mother Abigail. Let's start with Joe. All right. So Larry's group is is meeting Mother Abigail and Joe's reaction is amazing. Joe immediately loves Mother Abigail. Like he jumps into her arms and they're like worried he's going to like break her with like, <laughs> as aggressively as he's diving in. And Joe says his name. Joe's name is Leo. Close enough. Which will <laughs> proceed to confuse me for the rest of the chapter. <laughs> and everyone else, it seems. Because yeah. everyone else, very realistically, is like, Joe, it's Leo. Oh, yeah, right. Right, right, right. <laughs> the, the amazing thing here is so, like, now, like, we have Nadine, who is, you know, made for the Dark Man, and we have Mother Abigail. They're so close together, and Joe's in between them. And... He is saying his name to Mother Abigail and Nadine keeps calling him Joe and keeps calling him back. And so like it's like a mini battle for his soul right there in the meet and greet. I would argue it's a mini battle not for Leo's soul, but for Nadine's. Yeah, this is the second instance of God just fucking it up real bad. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, when Abigail walks up to or when uh, Nadine walks up to Mother Abigail Abigail immediately, she sees her face and thinks that it's the dark man. She thinks she sees Randall Flagg in her. She knows something. There's something evil about this woman. But then she doesn't trust that feeling. She's like, no, no, she's surely just a woman, isn't she? Throughout these next two chapters, people keep having Instincts that they ignore. That they completely completely (laughs) ignore. They sense something evil in their midst. And they're just like, no. Stuff like that doesn't happen. I mean, we all follow this lady here because of a dream. (laughs) Exactly. My instincts can't be right now. Yeah. So there's this this second where instantly they're like opposed. And uh, hey, Dean, you you think that there's been there's going to be this battle for her soul. But she sees Mother Abigail and immediately is like, nah. Mm-hmm. And just walks away. But see, and that's the thing is that she, it's like, as, in a, as, as Nadine gets further away from her, Mother Abigail loses the clarity that she had when she was right in front mm-hmm. of her. It's like something was trying to stop her from locking into that thought. And as soon as Nadine is out of eyesight, 
it's all gone. And she knows something was there, but what was it? And she feels pressured to stay because she is like the greeter, the welcomer. Everybody's there to see her. Mm-hmm. And that is going to come back to bite her eventually, which we're not going to get to in this episode. But just keep that in mind. She pays the price for this moment. So later that night, Larry visits Franny and tells her a love story. Yeah, uh, I wrote down Fran and meets Larry. It's very natural and not stilted at all. (laughs) (laughs) This is so awkward because he's he's brought this bottle of wine. It's aged and he has like a million payday candy bars because he's been following Harold's empty wrappers and his his signs and he's telling Franny this epic journey that he had and Harold was his guide his light at the end of the tunnel and he can't wait to meet him and she's just sitting there like our Harold it weirds her the (laughs) fuck out and she doesn't I think this is kind of cruel she does not prepare him for what he's about to get into when he does meet Harold and she should have well but she doesn't this is another instance of feeling something wrong and ignoring it because yeah. she she doesn't really know that there's or won't acknowledge that there's something wrong about Harold. He's completely changed. He smiles all the time and is friendly and uh, they describe him as like a politician that yeah. is always very glib and but there's classic king the smile never reaches his eyes right but everyone's just like no that's harold they can chalk a lot of stuff up to what they've all been through they've all been through the end of the world some people are just handling it better than others and maybe they are allowing him that like weirdness yeah because of that but we we quickly learn that um they should not be ignoring Harold. no because harold is at home writing what he professes to be the most Eloquent, profound words man has ever written. Yes. I, the writing in this, not Harold's writing. Harold's writing is... Pretentious uh, and immature and crazy. It, it's it's the writings of a madman mm-hmm. because he has this ledger that he says it, there's no paragraph breaks. There's no sentences. It is margin to margin scrawling. And it's it that's insanity. But hmm, the writing, my <laughs> the, the writing in this section though is really good. Uh, King's writing um, that he he's on his lawn with his ledger in his lap and looking up at the stars and saying they aren't lovers' stars; they're too too harsh and too hard. That he says he's sitting under the haters' stars and and is make so he makes a wish on them. And I I just. As much as I hate Harold, he's still a really good villain. Oh, his... Oh, his he's a great yeah, villain. Yeah, he is fun to read. And his goddamn arrogance yes. in this manifesto full of hate, where he says he's going to... He, he knows he's going to be in the inner circle of everything that happens inside this place. And after a couple months, he's going to take all this information. He's going to walk to Flag's camp and be welcomed with open arms. He legitimately thinks he is going to be made like prince of mm-hmm. the dark army because of the value he provides. Yeah. And okay. the chapter ends with one of the best visuals in the book so far yeah. of him walking into his house and going into his bathroom and practicing <laughs> smiling yeah, in the so dark. Good. And I wrote down that's good villain shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure he's not your Annie? No, because <laughs> he's a real piece of shit. <laughs> so, so is Annie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Chapter 51, July 4th, 2019. All staff of Dairy Public Radio were present. CM Alexander led the discussion. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay, yeah. There's these, these, You get these, it? You yeah, get it, right? Yeah, yeah, I got These it. last I got two it. chapters, I love this book. But the political bullshit I want drives to leave me crazy. These two chapters while they talk about all that crap and go see what Flag's doing because yes! that has to be more exciting. <laughs> yes, there is so much discussion of politics, and it, I, uh, I snore. Okay. I don't care. We've talked about Stephen King moments, and typically they're they're these like profoundly terrifying moments over just this tiny little detail that he has a way of describing to you that is terrifying. 
there are also Stephen King moments where we get like page after page about the most mundane details. Yeah. And to be honest, I, I love th- I love them both. <laughs> they are part of what makes reading a Stephen King book reading a Stephen King book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So a lot of these two chapters, there's a lot of discussion on what comes next. How do we become a society again? And some of the ways that they go about it, once again, make me go, we're rooting for these guys. These are the good guys. Really? They they make a point to say just because these are the good guys does not mean they're immune from doing bad things. Y- True. They are mm-hmm. they are not pure goodness. They are flawed, but at their core good. Uh, I fucking guess. <laughs> well, and it, it shows you the difference between how a society forms itself around a radical leader who has given everyone sort of emotional goal, this emotional radical goal. And another leader who is sort of stepped back a little more and the people themselves have to form a group of people to rally around. And they go about it the shittiest way possible. Yeah, they're trying to reform a society. Maybe it's just my own political leanings that I have a problem with this. Um, In the last chapter, there was this long segment of uh, Stu and Glenn in the mountains, drinking wine and and bullshitting, basically, and uh, coming up with the plan to go forward. Stu asking Glenn, what do we do? We need a step-by-step guide to get shit going. And his first two ideas are, one, ratify the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all that. Essentially, be like, no, nah, it's, it's still America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, reboot the government. 2.0. That is a fine idea in theory, but that's the you can do better, man. There, <laughs> you are starting from scratch. How about okay, we're going to ratify the Bill of Rights, but also let let's not do all the mm-hmm. the uh corruption and uh <laughs> and uh, white supremacy bullshit. Let's get also, that out of there. Keep in mind, you're talking about a drunk sociologist. Okay, <laughs> fine. But literally, the second step is com- we're going to have a com- perfect democracy that we immediately undermine because we're going to set up our board of directors, seven people on this committee that we pick and choose and no one gets a say in. Right. It- it's just all such He's like... Well, you're doing it. You're making America again, better or worse. Do you guys want to keep talking about politics? Oh, God, no. Okay. It just sucks. Let's talk about Larry meeting Harold. Yes. I thought his his approach up to Harold and what happens was pretty cool and disturbing. Uh, Larry and Leo go to finally track down Harold's house. And as they get there, they, they catch Harold unaware as he's gardening. And when they call out his name, he turns around and for a second, Larry sees the the real menace. He sees the real Harold before he can kind of put that mask back on. And Leo senses that and is saying, I don't want to go anywhere near this guy. So I'm going to be out here. You do your thing. And Larry approaches Harold. They hit it off. And all of Harold's rehearsing and practicing is paying off because Larry buys the smile. He buys the attitude hook, line and sinker. And once again, reading about Harold here is a completely different character than when we first met him. He talks different. Uh, When he, when he meets Larry outside, he says, uh, he says, Oh, come on inside. We ought to have a jaw. He's trying to be one of the good old boys. Like Glenn and Stu. Not him at Mm -mm. all. No, no. So my favorite part is after all of this, Larry comes out and he'd wanted Leo to come in with him. And he's like, no, something (laughs) wrong with that guy. Got to go. Well, he didn't say that at that point, but Mm -hmm. he refused. And so Larry's like, "Okay, you know, walk back to our place. You know how to get there. Right. Awesome. He comes out a few blocks later. Leo was just waiting for him the whole time. And so they start to have a conversation about Harold because Larry he does buy it all but there's still that instinct in him and something was off about that meeting and Leo says he is spot on with this 
He's not like us. He smiles a lot, but I think there might be worms inside him making him smile. Big white worms eating up his brain like maggots. Leo is, I I love Leo. Mm -hmm. And his relationship with Larry, that's the biggest redeeming quality for Larry so far, Mm -hmm. is that he's walking down the street, he's doing stuff, and Leo's copying him by. I think Leo has saved Larry. Absolutely. And Leo has an interesting relationship with Lucy and Nadine, too. So he calls Nadine, Nadine mom, and Lucy, Lucy mom. So he's sort of living between these two families. Mm -hmm. I almost called him Joe. (laughs) <laughs> Leo is such a great character, and you have the sense that he, he sees through people. He has this intuition. He even says, uh, Larry asks him, why do you think the his blinds were drawn? Um, everyone else, uh, all the houses they've moved into, all the blinds are open, but not Harold's. And Leo says, maybe he's praying to the dark man. Because mm-hmm. all of the closed blind houses are houses where there are dead people mm-hmm. and Larry's and Harold's like, dead inside <laughs> yeah and, yeah he says that and Larry like kind of jumps and then he's just like huh wonder what that means and then completely ignores it so the next part we get Franny finally listens to her instincts and she finds Harold's calling card on her diary that tells her that he has read it and that's when she lo- is looking through this going why was I giving him, like, why did I have to write about him that way? That was mm-hmm. pretty cruel. And she finds a chocolate thumbprint <laughs> smudge on her journal. And since she doesn't eat paydays and Harold does, she realizes what happened. Um, and then just completely ignores that for yep, quite a while. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, fun fact, I don't think there was ever such thing as chocolate paydays. Nope, never mind, there were. (laughs) I literally saw a payday today at the store. (laughs) But uh, anyway, Anyway. (laughs) I thought it was just a, because there's a callback, I think, in one of the Dark Tower books, where they find, uh, they enter into Mm -hmm. the world of the stand, stand, and I think one of them finds a chocolate payday, and they're like, what? What the hell is this? That's amazing. There's never a chocolate payday. Oh, anyway. So we're in the universe of the stand, if you just found a chocolate payday. Oh, shit. Uh. I don't like that. Uh, so all of this happens and, uh, it brings us as, um, after Franny finds the, the chocolate thumbprint, it's the night of the first meeting of the free zone ad hoc committee. Zone, 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 zone. zone. Uh, they're preparing for the first big town-wide, town-wide meeting in which they are going to, uh, subvert democracy and elect (laughs) their, um, cabal and uh they have this meeting and they ratify a bunch of unimportant shit and it is boring as hell until they get to nick's absolutely insane idea spies that i immediately (laughs) wrote that nick suggests sending infiltrators to gain intel dot 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 oh that's not gonna work (laughs) (laughs) and i i remember this this is one of those things that like the back half of this book for whatever reason is not nearly as clear in my memory as the rest of it but i remembered this part and i remembered who they send and it still blows my goddamn mind (laughs) what did you guys think uh well the the first two i like were whatever they uh i believe larry suggests the judge Mm -hmm. sue because he's old and if he dies, who cares? So what? Because Larry's a real nice guy now. <laughs> uh, Sue suggests Dana, mm-hmm. and they do that. And then Nick suggests Tom Collins. That hurt. Fuck. This is the point where I, I wrote, Jesus Christ, this chapter really turned me against the free zone. Like, <laughs> oh my God. This is the most fucking cruel thing they could possibly do. Nick's reasoning is. Well, Tom Cullen, he's slow, but uh, that, that'll be a bonus because we can really train him to go do this thing that he doesn't fully understand and can't fully comprehend. He can be hypnotized. <laughs> he can Completely. be hypnotized. And if they torture him, he won't give it up. Bad, heartless idea. Well, and here's what's even worse about it. They go, they do the vote. All of the men vote yes, the women vote no. Once it's official, the women are like, yeah, all right, right yeah, as I well. Guess. 
Yeah, it is such. I don't even know why women are on this committee. Are, <laughs> are they having babies? Yeah, it is. It sucks for just a whole lot of reasons. Yeah, my last note is. Oh, Fran and Sue vote yes anyway. Fuck these people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us on our next episode, part four, where we'll be covering chapters 52 through 61. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Kahn reminding you, every dog has its day. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. We hope you enjoyed The Stand, part three. Another bit of trivia for you, courtesy of the Illustrated Stephen King Trivia Book. In honor of the miniseries, since we'll be watching that soon, what part did King play in The Stand? Randall Flagg, Teddy Wyzak, Bill Hapscomb, or The Monster Shouter? Tell us on our social media. You can find us at Dairy Public Radio. That's Dairy Public at Twitter, of course. The first person to post the correct answer gets an amazing prize. Update on the prize, there is no prize, but you will get the admiration, respect, and undying love of all those around you when you wow them with your Google search abilities. As always, check out our website, constantreaders.org, read some cool short stories and poetry, and we take submissions, so submit something to us. And don't forget to check out our Patreon at patreon.com front slash dairypublicradio. Huge, huge thank you to all of our current subscribers. You guys and gals continue to amaze us. If you're not into subscribing, you can make a one-time donation to our PayPal at dairypublicradio at gmail.com. And if you're not into giving us any money, which is totally cool, you can help us out by rating and reviewing us on iTunes so that they don't think we're dead and bury us where we'll never be found again. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye. <laughs>